As you know, our lead pastor has been on sabbatical for the month of July, and we've had some great, great guest pastors, and it's my honor to introduce another guest pastor. Well, hey, it's Aaron. Come on, bro. Hey, y'all welcome Aaron back, man. We're glad to have you back as our guest pastor Thanks. today, brother. Love you. Missed you. Thanks. Guest speaker today. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that, <laughs> jerk. Um, <laughs> it's good to see you guys, church. I missed you uh, a lot. If you're one of our guests this, the, that's been coming since July, my apologies. A um, little disclaimer, if you would have gone anywhere in DFW, most of the pastors are gone in July, too. I visited like seven churches, and they were all gone all summer long, so it's not just me. But anyway, I'm glad that you guys are here. Um, hey, real quick, um, how many of you guys did have a chance at some point this summer, you had a chance to get away a little, on a little vacay, maybe it was a staycation or something like that, but you had a little bit of R&R, a little time to kind of get away. I've kind of realized there's a few different ways people vacation. Um, you know, some people kind of like the water stuff, like the lake or the beach, uh, some people are more the outdoors type. You like to get a tent and go in the middle of the woods and just, I don't know what you do in the middle of the woods, but you find something to do out there, right? And then like some people are about like exploring culture and things of that nature. Um, how many of you guys would say that you're, a, uh, you're an outdoors person? You like the tent and you like the, yeah, okay, we got a number of those kind. Um, and then how many are exploring culture? Uh, you like to go see a new, a new world and go check out museums and things of that nature. How many of you are the water people? Um, okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, this past July, we realized the Lord kind of cemented it upon my life that, uh, yeah, we're absolutely the beach people, the water people, and things like that. I think being in Hawaii for a week will do that to you all the time. Um, and we, we had a chance this past, uh, at the beginning of July, to go down and do a destination wedding out there uh, for some friends here at the church, which, again, I'm going to throw that out there. Any of you thinking about getting married, uh, you need someone to go do your destination wedding, we are your people, I promise you. We will... <laughs> We will go wherever that is, and it's going to be incredible. So um, anyway, that was an incredible time. It was so funny. We brought the whole family out there this time. We'd never done the Hawaii deal before. Uh, Caleb gets out there, sees the beach for the first time, and he's like, Daddy, this is nothing like Galveston. He's like, this is I'm like, yeah, buddy, the rest of the world, like, there's nothing like Galveston, I promise you. Right? I had to explain that to him. I was like, this is as good as it gets right there. And so uh, from there, we got to go enjoy Costa Rica. A generous family in the church sent us out there, and that was just a incredible blessing. Um, one of the things like, I, like I, I love to do during this time away is to go visit other churches and ministries in the area where God is moving powerfully. And like I said, I got to go visit seven different churches in DFW. And I've always found personally, it's very healthy for me to get outside of myself and, and our church and the people that I'm around all the time, just to be able to see that God is so much bigger than me. He's so much bigger than our particular local gathering right here, that God is moving in incredible ways all throughout this city. And uh, again, just one more time, had a chance to just affirm those different kinds of things. And so had a chance to visit the Village Church this past month, uh, Valley Creek, Crossroads Bible Church, Parkway Hills Baptist Freedom Church, Frisco Bible Church, and uh, One Community Church. And what a blessing it was to join with believers from uh, all around the city and celebrate what God is doing in, in uh, all different types of pockets and different types of people and, and things like that. A little shout out to One Community Church. I really enjoyed going out there this past week. I don't know if you guys, I'm not saying you need to switch churches or anything like that, but um, what a lively church out in Plano. Uh, one of the largest black churches in our entire Metroplex, and uh, God is moving powerfully over there and really enjoyed my time there too. So uh, I'm grateful to our elders and grateful to our staff and for you all for giving us that opportunity to refresh, be with family, and get away and pray and kind of look forward to this next year. 
Uh, this morning, I'm going to be launching a three-week series before we get into the meat of this next year on our vision. I like to do that every single August, come back and remind us of what we believe that God has called us to be and where he's called us to go as a church body. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9. That's where we're going to hang out uh, a little bit this morning. Um, about three years ago, uh, around this time, uh, God used a study to, uh, I shared with you guys a study that God really used to help shape the way that we talk about our vision here at the church. It was a study that came out by Lifeway and some different researchers out there, but um, it was a talking about uh, the, how disproportionate the rate of growth in America is compared to the rate of evangelism and discipleship going on in, in the American church. And so, for instance, but from 1990 to 2005, uh, there, was about, there was an additional 92 million people added to the United States of America. That's how much things have been growing here recently. 92 million more people in those 15 years than, than before. And, uh, and so it's not that evangelism and discipleship isn't really taking place in the church. It's just that we're not even coming close to keeping up with the rate of growth here in our country. And so the, the study went on and it talked about how uh, from in the next seven years, from 2008 to 2015, so it's past tense now, it was future tense back then, uh, nearly 55,000 churches would be shutting down their doors. And of course, historians and, and researchers are looking back and they're saying, you know what, that's a pretty accurate number for what took place during those years, 2008 to 2015. Uh, 55,000 churches closing their doors. On top of that, uh, the total population who's actually attending church would be decreasing from about 17% of the total population down to about 14% of the total population. And we're kind of hearing that number going, okay, 3%, no big deal, right? Well, that's 10 million people. Uh, that are 10 million fewer people that are now regularly attending church than, than used to be. Um, and so those are some pretty alarming things. I was reading this thing kind of going, okay, this is a heavy, heavy study uh, to be paying attention to. But the thing that really caught my attention was this. It talked about out of all the churches in the United States of America, um, there's only about 20% that were actually growing. And of those who were actually growing in, in numerical attendance, only 1% of those churches were doing it largely by sharing the gospel with those who are unchurched or dechurched or far away from God and raising up disciples inside the church, which is the mission of God. And so the next most obvious question is, okay, well, if that's taking place, then where in the world is all the growth taking place? Because certainly there's pockets all around the country where growth is, is happening. And the answer is, of course, it's just largely church hopping. It's, it's Christians um, who are shuffling around from one place to the next because the fact of the matter is there's always going to be someone else down the street who's able to do things a little bit better than you. And so, yeah, numerical growth is taking place in different pockets all around the country, but overwhelmingly what we're seeing is that it's very, very easy for us to lose sight of what God has called us to do and what God has called us to be as a body of believers. And so that's what I want to deal with a little bit this morning. I love the way that Craig Groeschel, he's the pastor of Life Church up in Oklahoma, he talks about the importance of churches having a gospel-oriented vision. And I love what he says. He says, what's at stake in doing this is not the future of denominations, church buildings, or the jobs of pastors. He says, what's at stake are the souls of thousands of people who do not see the need for the Lord Jesus Christ, much less his church. And I think he's absolutely right. And so this morning, I want to talk a little bit about our vision and remind us of what God has called us to be. In short, uh, we want to be included in that 1%. 
right? In short, we want to be included in that 1%. The way that we talk about it around here at DBC is that we want to be a multiplying missional family. And so unashamedly, we recognize that God has called us to be a family. It's what he's done. As many as have received him to them, he's given the right to be called children of God. He has brought us into one brand new family. But when we think about family, we're not thinking about meet the parents and, and, and Robert De Niro and meet the parents that have this circle of trust that no one's able to break into. You know what I'm talking about there? Uh, right? When we're talking about family, we need to be thinking about Medea's family. I think we've got a picture right there, right? You know what I'm talking about? I don't know if you guys watch any Tyler Perry movies or anything like that, but like Medea's family, like when she hosts a barbecue in her backyard, the entire neighborhood's welcome at any given time, right? They can be coming at 2 o'clock in the morning. They can come at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. They're always going to be welcome at Medea's house. And when we talk about being a family here at the church, we're thinking about Medea's family, not necessarily the Fockers and the circle of trust that no one's able to break into. And so that is who we want to become. It is a multi multiplying missional family that is marked by grace that brings joy to the city and glory unto the Lord. And so that's what I want to expound upon a little bit further this morning. What does it look like for us to be included in the 1%? What does it mean to be a mission-minded family that's actually marked by God's grace? And so that's what we're going to talk about a little bit this morning. So if, again, if you have your Bibles, 2 Samuel chapter 9 is where we're going to be. Uh, if you don't, no big deal. I'm going to be putting these passages up on the screen. It'll be easy for you to follow along with uh, today. Um, we're going to be talking about King David's kindness to a cripple named Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is what I just said. So here's what I'm going to need you to do. I'm going to need you to turn to the person next to you and say Mephibosheth three times as fast as you possibly can. Right? I just want you to have a little compassion for what I'm going to be dealing with today and hope that I don't accidentally cuss. Um, yeah, right. So this is the passage, i got to say, like this is a passage that really marked my life very, very early on. I keep coming back to it. This is easily one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture, but this is easily one of the ones that God used to help shape our vision, vision as a church. And so when the passage opens up, uh, there's a lot of different things that have been taking place. When Second Samuel opens up, uh, King Saul and his son Jonathan have, have actually passed away, which means now that David is going to be the new king of Israel. And so if you remember from the big story, which we've been tracking along with this past year, uh, this is a long time coming. King Saul was actually Israel's very first king that they ever had. Uh, things started off really well. For the first 15 years, he was very faithful to the Lord. Something happened at year 15 where he started growing cold in his affections to God. And so at that point in time, the favor of the Lord uh, was removed from King Saul, and his anointing came upon David. Now that's a problem because Saul wasn't done being king, right? And so for the next 25 years of Saul's reign, he was incredibly jealous of David because he recognized God's anointing was on him and he was the next in line and his family line was going to be broken from that point forward. He became very jealous of David and for the next 25 years off and on, he would try to murder and have David killed. Now this is a problem for Jonathan because Jonathan's caught in the middle of the entire thing. Jonathan is King Saul's son and he's also David's best friend. Uh, King uh, Jonathan would then be the natural heir to the throne. As King Saul's son, he would be next in line. And so what happens is he actually understands uh, what God has done. He fears the Lord and loves the Lord. And so he recognizes God's anointing upon David, and he thinks that that's more valuable. And so instead of hostility and, and competition going on, he's, he becomes David's best friend, and he's caught in the middle. And when Saul is trying to kill David, Jonathan intervenes and protects his friend. And so that's going to take us to the end of First. Samuel. And so by the time chapter 9 comes around in 2 Samuel, like all that drama from the past is finally finished. 
right? Saul is passed away. Jonathan has passed away, and things could not be going better for King David at this point in time. Like, people love him. God's giving him victory after victory. This is before Bathsheba happens, and his life, his, his life just kind of dissipates and falls apart. And uh, things could not be going better for King David. And it's there in the middle of that place. All of a sudden, he wakes up one morning, and he asks this question that every one percenter wakes up and, and asks to begin their day. He says, Lord, who can I show your kindness to today? Lord, who can I show your kindness to today? And he's not just thinking about like the easy people that are easy to love, right? Like your family, your friends, and, and the people that are like you, that think like you, and things of that nature. He's, he's actually considering how we can go in and love his enemy. He says that in verse 1. Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake. And so that's who Saul is, right? He's not exactly one of David's friends. Anyone who spends 25 years of their life trying to undermine you, trying to kill you, and, and, and have nothing to do with you, like they're not your friend. And, and neither would their family be, right? Like hypothetically speaking, if there were a remaining descendant of King Saul, uh, that person hypothetically could rise up, make a claim to the throne, gather a loyal following, and try to do everything in their power in order to undermine the current king and have him overthrown, which is exactly why most kings back in that day, they didn't just kill their enemies, uh, right? They, 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 they did it publicly. They tried to publicly torture them and humiliate them in order to send a message to everyone watching that you do not mess with the king. There's a great example of this going on in Judges chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. But this is a story where the Israelites have just defeated the Canaanites, and they've captured the Canaanite king, King Adonai Bezek. Okay, and it says in verse 6 that they cut off the king's thumbs and big toes. Right, that's what they did. They cut off the king's thumbs and their big toes. The reason you would do that is because if you don't have any thumbs, you're not able to grip a sword, right? Like you're not, you're not going to be great with the sword. And then if you have no big toes, you're not able to run in battle and lead anyone to overthrow current king. And so that's what they did. I love Adonai Bezek's response in verse 7. Check this out. He says this. In response, he's got no, no thumbs, no toes. Here's what he says. Seventy kings with thumbs and toes cut off have gathered scraps underneath my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. In other words, church, like that was how you treated your enemies. That was the norm in the day. But hear me, it's not... For the 1%. It's not what King David does. David wakes up one morning and he says, Lord, is there anyone left of the house of Saul? Is there anyone of my enemies to whom I may show the kindness of God to for the sake of my friend Jonathan? That's what he says. By the way, Jesus is going to tell us the exact same thing. Right? In Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, he's going to say, you've heard it said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Right? Isn't that what's normal? That you love your neighbor uh, and hate your enemy. You do good to the people that are like you and that are friendly to you. And you get vengeance upon the people that oppose you. Haven't you heard that said? But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? Verse 45. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. Now what's he talking about there? He's not, this isn't a new soteriology of like how you're actually saved, right? This is not about how to be saved. He's talking about, uh, he, he's talking about the fact that children are known for doing what they see their fathers do. That, that, that's what he's referencing. Like children do this all the time. They do the things that they see their fathers do. It's the reason why I'm a Florida Gator fan to this day, right? I'm obnoxious about it. I love my Gators. I've been a Gator since I was born, essentially, because my dad went to the University of Florida, and every single weekend we would be cheering for the Florida Gators. I'm a Gator because of what I've seen my father do. Uh, Caleb is in this really funny stage where um, he loves belts. This is really weird, okay? Like a, about a month ago, uh, this may have been the first time he's ever seen this, but I actually tucked in my shirt, and I wore a belt, right? And I don't know why I did that, but um, he saw me. 
he saw me doing that. I, I tucked in my shirt and I wore a belt and he looked easily like, dad, that's, a, that's like a police belt. Like policemen, they wear belts and stuff. And so he's fascinated by this whole thing and me wearing a belt. And so he insists, we go to the store, we buy him jeans that have the little belt loops. We buy him a little belt that fits him and things like that. I'm not kidding you. It's 109 degrees outside, but my kid is wearing jeans and a belt everywhere he goes. Why? Because like, that's what children do. They do the things that they see their father do. And it's exactly what Jesus is saying right here. Church, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Why? Because it's exactly what God has done for us. Right? While we were still sinners, Christ came and he died for us. He didn't wait for us to become friends. While we were still sinners, lost and dead in our sins, Christ came and he died for us. Paul's going to say the same thing in Ephesians chapter 2, and he's going to draw it out a little bit differently. And I love the way that he talks about this. He says this. He's addressing the Gentiles in the church, and he's going to say, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who are called the circumcision, meaning there's this uh, incredible tension going on in the first century church between the Jews and the Gentiles, right? Jews were uh, calling the Gentiles the uncircumcised. It It was a... bad designation back in the day because it meant that you were outside of the covenant community of believers. And so there's this name calling, there's this rivalry and bitterness going on in the first century church as these two groups are becoming one. And here's what he says. He says, remember, Gentiles, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of promise without hope, without God in this world. But now that you are in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, in Colossians, he's going to say, uh, when you were enemies of God, hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds. But, but, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away uh, have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. For he himself is our peace, who's made two groups into one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. What's he talking about with that? The barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Well, two things kind of. Um, metaphorically, he's talking about this, this metaphorical barrier that, that, that exists, which divides the Jews from the Gentiles. Uh, but literally, he's referring uh, to this wall which exists at the Temple Mount, which literally separated the Gentiles from the Jews as they came to God to worship. I've got a picture of it up here. I want to show you this, and I don't know if you can see this very well, but um, on the outskirts of that giant thing going on is the court of the Gentiles. Gentiles were welcome to come worship Yahweh, uh, the covenant God of Israel. They were welcome to come in there, but they could only go so far. If you're able to see kind of past the court of Gentiles, there's a small wall. That is the dividing wall of hostility, which he's referencing right there. On the inside of that is the court of women. Women were able to, able to go there, and then men were able to go further in. A lot of divisions at this time. And there at the very top, you're going to see the tall building, which is the temple. You're going to see the holy place, the holy of holies, and things of that nature inside of that. But that's what's going on there. There's a court of Gentiles. There's a literal wall which divided where the Gentiles were able to worship and where the Jews were able to worship. Uh, On top of that, there's an inscription on that wall which read this. It It said, whoever is captured will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. Do not cross this line. I mean, they were serious about this division, and so that was on the inscription. You think that that's going to create a little bit of hostility between Jews and Gentiles, right? Like, that, that's what they're walking into in this first century when Christ is creating a brand new body right here. But here's what he said. Now that you are found in Jesus Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. For he is our peace, who's made the two groups into one, destroyed the barrier, this dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with his commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus establishing peace. 
and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross of Jesus Christ, which he put to death, uh, by which he put to death their hostility. In other words, church, for better or for worse, what we're seeing right here is that we're family. We're all in the exact same team. He's brought us in two groups into one, one brand new family, Jews and Gentiles, friends and enemies, men and women, rich and poor, the good, the bad, white and black, brown and yellow and red. That is what he came to do. Verse 6, 15, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus establishing peace. So church, here it is. If that is what God has come to do, and is that is why he sent his one and only son, Jesus, and that is how he loved us when we were enemies of his holiness, hostile in mind, and engaged in evil deeds, then who in the world are we to build walls that Jesus came to destroy? Church, that, like, that's what he's saying. Church, like, how do you think about your enemies in your life? How do we think about them? I, I mean, are we like them where we sit there and say, okay, you've heard it said that you should love your neighbors, but I'm telling you, you should love your enemies. How do you think about your enemies? And I'm not saying that you, we're, we're walking into hostile territory where you're, you're being abused over and over again or, or um, you're being taken advantage of over and over and over again. But have you ever considered the fact that God may want to use you in your enemy's life for the praise and glory of his name? Have you ever considered that they may actually be part of your mission field uh, through whom God may want to use you to be able to bring his grace into their life? Grace is most easily received when it's most unexpected. One of my favorite ministries uh, in DFW that I had a chance to visit again most recently is a, is a ministry in town called um, Loving All Peoples. Friend Kyle Jenkins is in charge of it. They do an incredible thing. You know what they, you know what they do in, in, in Dallas? They literally go and just try to love all people. <laughs> it's that revolutionary, right? But they go around the city and they, they, they target and kind of pay attention to groups that are typically marginalized and overlooked by most people. We're talking about the homeless and uh, refugees and criminals and addicts and, um, and sex trafficking victims and sex trafficking perpetrators. And they go into these dark areas of DFW and they try to establish relationships in order to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. A number of, a few years back... Um, if you guys remember this, there was a number of about 2,000 Syrian refugees that were coming into DFW. And you probably remember this because there's a lot of controversy and people were on the fence about, okay, what do you do with these? And of course, it was, it was legal refugees coming into our city and stuff, and people were up in arms about it and things of that nature. And kind of some people are saying, hey, we need to go bomb them and have nothing to do with them. You want to know what these people did? They showed up at their door and they invited them into their home for dinner. They were, they were, they're, 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 they're located over in, in, ref, in uh, Vickery Meadows where all of these refugees are coming and they're in the community and they're knocking on their doors and they're saying, hey, we want to have you over to our home for dinner. And they're bringing them welcome gifts and they're sitting there having a relationship with them and they would actually go to the mosque with them and they would ask them about their faith and they would come back and have an opportunity to share the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ with them and a number of those refugees would end up coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ simply because they were willing to not just see an enemy but see someone that God absolutely loves and has a purpose for so they would sit down with those people and they would actually have a conversation and love on these people and church maybe for some of you like it's not that but it may absolutely be um, a spouse or an ex-spouse, or someone who's completely dropped you in every way possible, and you hate them to this day. Or maybe it's a, a business partner or a friend who's stabbed you in the back repeatedly over and over and over again. Or maybe it's just some antagonist in your life that, that is just continuing to come after you time and time again. And David just gets up one morning and he says, Lord, is there anyone in my enemy's household that you may want me to go and show kindness to today? 
And I promise you, church, there's nothing normal about asking that question. But then again, like my, my argument would be that normal's not exactly working for the church today, right? And so the story continues, and we're going to find out that it's, it's not just that Mephibosheth is an enemy, a natural enemy to the throne, but we're going to find out that he's also a social outcast that most people are not going to want to have anything to do with. We pick this up in verse 2, and it says, Now there's a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king uh, said to him, Are you Ziba? And he says, At your service, he replies. So the king repeated his question, and he said, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? And Ziba answered the king, and he said, There is still a son of Jonathan, and he's lame in both feet. Let me ask you a question. Like, How would you like to always have that footnote attached to your name? Like, He's never called just Mephibosheth by his name. It's never the case where it's like, oh, yeah, there's a guy named Mephibosheth, and, and there's a son of Jonathan still out there. It's no, no, no. There's a, there's a man named Mephibosheth who's lame and crippled in both feet. You guys remember back in John chapter 9 when the disciples come across a man who has been born and who was born blind and has been blind his entire life? You remember the question that they asked Jesus? They, 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 they turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, okay, who sinned? Was it this man right here or was it his parents that caused him to be born blind? And Jesus turns and responds to him, and he just says, no, no, no. It's not that this man sinned, but that the work of God may be displayed in his life. Church, that is the stigma that's associated with someone like Mephibosheth. The reason I say that, like, it's, it's not just, and it didn't just end right then, right? Like, this is a thing that continues to persist today. A number of years ago, I was in Bangladesh, India, or Bangalore, India, and uh, the people we were with took me to go visit this city, this, this, this thing on the outskirts of the city, that was totally reserved for people that had been kicked out, these social outcasts of their city, widows, orphans, the sick, and the diseased. The people that everybody else believed that they were cursed of God and people wanted nothing to do with them. We came and there was an entire village of people that were cast off by the rest of the world. And church, like, this is not just an India thing and it's not just a first century thing or, or things like that. Like, we got to understand, like, these social barriers, they persist everywhere. A number of years back, uh, about three years ago when I first started over here, uh, I went up to southern Indiana to go be a part of Revive Indiana with the Martins. Uh, we were out with a group of about four people in the community. We were praying with people and sharing the gospel with them. And there was a girl on my team who was an African-American girl. And we were sitting on the front porch of a, this house with this couple. And we were sharing the gospel and praying with them and, and things like that. And I'm not kidding you. All of a sudden, there's a giant truck that peels down our street, waving a giant Confederate flag down there. They pull up and screech to a halt in front of the house and they scream out their window, get out of our neighborhood inward, you're not welcome here. And then they peel off and take off. And I look at this girl and she's just like, not the first time, not the first time. I mean, a number of years back, we were back at uh, uh, the Dallas Life Center. We were serving at this homeless kitchen out there. Uh, Kat and I were, and I started talking with this homeless man, and I asked him, I was like, is there anything I can do for you? Is there anything specific I can pray for you about? And he goes, you know, my biggest need is not finding shelter on a, any given night or finding a meal. I've, I've got kitchens and things like that that I can go eat from. My biggest need is believing that I've still got value to people and to the Lord. He goes, the reality is every single day I walk on the streets and I see people look at me, and then I see them go out of their way to make sure they don't make eye contact with me again. And the reason I say that, church, is because you've got to understand, like, that's who Mephibosheth is. Like, it's this outcast. It's this person who's been shunned by everyone else in the world. And in the middle of that place, David sees him and he calls out to him. That's who Mephibosheth is. So it's not surprising. When we get to verse 4 and 5, it's not very surprising that we're going to find Mephibosheth, there it is, hiding in a place called Lodabar. 
Now, commentators are going to look at this part of, this, of the passage, and they're going to make this point, that it's going to look like Mephibosheth is, is trying to do everything he can to be as far from the king of Jerusalem as possible, right? You look at these places on the map, and Lodabar is really, really far away from Jerusalem. On top of that, Lodabar is a word which literally means no word and no thing. So I want you to think about that for a second here. Okay, Mephibosheth, who is a natural enemy to the king. Mephibosheth, who is a social cast-off, someone who's been uh, brushed to the side by the rest of the world, has chosen to spend the rest of his days in a place called Lodabar, which literally means no word or no thing. And I wonder if maybe some of us have ever been there before. Right? Like, and, and maybe it's some sort of an addictive behavior. Maybe it's some sort of a, a pornography problem or something like that you've never been able to overcome in your life. Or maybe it's some sort of a, an eating disorder or something like that, and you've never been able to shun it, and you're kind of thinking to yourself, I'm better than this, I know better than this, I should be doing a much better job in my life. Or maybe it's some sort of an anger problem you've never been able to shed, and you just keep destroying every relationship that's meaningful to you in your life. And all of a sudden, the shame has this way of seeping into your life, and you find yourself uh, doing everything in, uh, in your power to run as far from the king as you can possibly run. And you found yourself now kind of hiding in this place where it feels like you can literally hear no word or thing from the Lord. You know what's interesting about Mephibosheth's story is, and ours even too, is that most of the time that we live in shame, it's because of something that we brought upon ourselves, right? Like we do something bad, we, 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 um, we jump into some sort of behavior, we feel like we should be doing a better job, we allow ourselves to be, um, you know, we allow ourselves to fall into all kinds of shame, and it's not what takes place with Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is hiding in Lodabar not because of something that he's done. He cannot help the fact that he was born into the wrong family. And on top of that, like, he's not crippled because of something stupid that he was doing. Right? We're going to read about this a few chapters earlier. We find out in chapter 4 um, that when Mephibosheth is only five years old, the way that he got crippled was news began to spread that King Saul and his son Jonathan had been killed in battle. And so the nurse that was taking care of him got terrified about the whole thing. So she picks him up, and in her haste, she tries to run away. And while she's running away trying to protect Mephibosheth, she trips and she falls and shatters both of his legs. That's how he's crippled for the rest of his day. It wasn't his fault. It wasn't by anything. It wasn't because he was doing something dumb or something he wasn't supposed to be doing. It was because someone who was supposed to love him and care for him and protect him accidentally dropped him instead. And the reason I bring that up is because I can't tell you how many people are spiritually crippled today because someone who was supposed to love them, care for them, and protect them ended up dropping them instead. And for a lot of people, that's the church. They came to this place or another place in the world, and they came looking for hope, they came looking for answers, they came looking for compassion and healing, and instead, they were dropped. For some people, it was a parent who was supposed to love them, comfort them, care for them, and protect them, and instead... They left and were just dropped right on top of their head. For some people, it was a pastor or someone, a spiritual leader or something like that, someone that they trusted and looked up to, and they come to find out years later that the whole thing's a complete fraud, and they thought that they could trust them, and just all of a sudden, they were dropped, and it's not because of something that they did to deserve it. It's not because of something that they brought upon themselves, but all of a sudden, they, they find themselves in the exact same place as Mephibosheth, running as far from the king as they can possibly run, and hiding in a place called Lodabar where they can literally hear no word or no thing from the Lord. And church, what I want you to see is that that's who David goes to. That's who David goes to because that's what the 1% do. They always go after the one. 
Jesus is going to say the same thing. Luke chapter 15, right? He's, he's speaking to these Pharisees and these people that are all angry because he's having dinner and he's eating and he's associating with all these sinners, right? And they're upset about that because it's not what people in Jesus' position, position do. And so he tells them a story. He says, suppose that one of you has 100 sheep and one of them goes missing. Are you not going to leave the 99 and do everything in your power to go find that one? And then when you find that one, aren't you going to throw them on your shoulders and start celebrating? Call up your neighbors and all your friends and say, rejoice with me because I found that one sheep. In the exact same way, I tell you the truth, that there's more joy in heaven over, 99, over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. Church, that is the heart of our Father. He is a God who sees and always goes after the one. That's who he is. And in Luke chapter 19, it's a corrupt little tax collector named Zacchaeus. Right, And that's who Jesus sees, and he invites himself into his home and chooses to go and have a meal with him and, and, and because that's who he is. He is a God who sees who you are, and he always goes after the one. Luke chapter 8, it's a woman who's been bleeding for years and years and years, and Jesus sees her, and he touches her, and he completely heals her because that's who he is, a God who sees and always goes after the one. Ruth chapter 4, it's a Moabite widow who's had everything in the world stripped from her. God sees her, provides for her because that's who he is, and that's what he does. Luke chapter 8, Mary Magdalene who's healed of seven different demon possessions. John chapter 8, it's an adulterous woman that everyone wants to stone to death. Matthew chapter 8, it's a leper who's never been touched in years. And in John chapter 9, it's a blind who've never been able to see. And in Philemon, it's a runaway slave. And in Jonah, it's the Ninevites, the most evil and cruel people on the planet. God brings revival to them and healing to them. And in Acts chapter 9, it's a zealot, hate-filled zealot named Saul that Jesus meets face-to-face and changes his life forever because that is who our Father is. He is a God who sees and always goes after the one. And so what we see in David is that he's just doing what he's received already from his father. He's been marked by his grace, and he's passing it along to the next generation, right? And he's not just asking this question one morning, Lord, who can I go and be kind to? Is there anyone of house, Saul's household that I can show kindness to? But he's actually willing to, to, to move on that question. He's willing to go out in response to that question, right? It, it, it's Ellie Langston who goes around and is, and is looking around the surrounding neighborhood and seeing these apartment complexes saying, someone needs to reach these kids, and she starts this ministry called Circle One, mobilizing people here in our body to go in and share the gospel with our surrounding apartment communities, right? It's Cameron and Caitlin Mullins that are seeing this influx of thousands of refugees into our city, and they start this ministry called For the Nations in order to reach the gospel, in order to pro- proclaim the gospel to the nations that are all coming to the city of Dallas. It's Linda Cole who's always out there serving and bringing those refugees into the church body, loving them, caring for them, and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. It's Mark Harward who's always bringing groups of people into prisons to share the gospel with people who are in prison. Right? It's Wendy and it's Jeff and it's Cindy and it's Roland who are faithful every single four Sunday to go into our community and to keep sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's Craig and Jim and Wayne who are doing it in their workplaces. Right? It's Alicia and it's Ryan and, and it's Leanne who are doing it in their neighborhoods. Church, like that's what it looks like to be a church of the 1%. It's what we do because it's what God has done on our behalf. He always sees and goes after the one. And I love how the story wraps up. He keeps going here, and, and he calls out for Mephibosheth, and he goes and he finds him in Lodabar, and he brings him back home to his palace, and he says this, Mephibosheth, don't be afraid. I promise you, I will show kindness to you for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Can you imagine how terrified Mephibosheth must be in this time? Knowing you're an enemy of the king, knowing what typically happens to anyone who dare oppose the king. And all David says is, don't be afraid. I promise you, I will show kindness to you. For the sake of your father, Jonathan. In other words, you can relax because the certainty of my kindness has already been taken care of. 
by your father, Jonathan. Actually, it has nothing to do with you and what you deserve. The certainty of my kindness towards you has everything to do with what Jonathan has already done on your behalf. Church, write this down. The baggage of your past has no bearing on your present because the kindness of the Lord is always based upon the merit of another. The baggage of your past has no bearing on your present because the kindness of the Lord is always based upon the merit of another. That's what he just said. He just said, it's, it's, not, it's not about you and what you deserve, Mephibosheth. Don't be afraid. This isn't your track record. This isn't your resume that I'm looking at. He says, you're right. We're enemies. For, for all I know, you could rise up. You could try to overthrow my kingdom. You could try to have me killed. You bring nothing to the table that I actually need. You're a social outcast. Like there's nothing in you that I actually need. This isn't about you. But here's the reality. The, the reality is that Jonathan, your father, like he was my boy. He was my best friend. And when his father was trying to have me killed, he stuck up for me and he was faithful to me. And when he was next in line, he saw God's anointing on my life and he didn't get jealous and he didn't try to do his own thing. He supported me and he was loyal and he was my friend. And so because Jonathan was faithful and because of what he's done and because of who he is and because I love Jonathan, I promise you, you will be okay. Church, can I just tell you that my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ grew leaps and bounds the day that I realized that this is exactly what God has done for us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And John's going to put it like this, and he's going to say, in this is love. It's not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. For the longest time, like that word was a terrifying, churchy word that I had no idea what it meant until finally one day I just looked it up and realized that all that it means is that the wrath of God against our sin has been appeased. It has been satisfied. And it's not because of anything that we've done to deserve it. It's not because of anything that we've brought to the table. It's because the kindness of the Lord is always based upon the merit of another. Church, the reality is we were in the exact same place as Mephibosheth. We were in the exact same place as Mephibosheth, enemies of the king, crippled by sin, running from the king and hiding in Lodabar. And in the middle of that place, God sent us Jesus, the better Jonathan, to come and do for us what we could not do for ourselves. He lived a sinless life that we could not live. He willingly went to the cross to suffer, bleed, and die because that's what our sins brought upon ourselves. And three days later, he walked out of that tomb alive, proving that he is who he says that he is, the one and only king of all kings and lord of all lords. And he offered this free gift of salvation to any and all who would simply come to him in genuine faith to receive it. It's exactly why Paul is able to say radical things like there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has now set you free from the law of sin and death. In other words, church, Christ has taken care of everything for you. That's why Paul is able to say in 1 Corinthians 6, he's able to use words like, like holy and righteous and beloved to describe people like you and me. Like you think that those words are only reserved for the king of all kings, but he's, he's using those words to describe the church, people like you and me. And we're reading these things, kind of going, okay, that's not who I am. Like I know what my life is like. I know the things that go on in my head, and I know what happened last weekend, and I know what happened when I was in college, and I know all these different things, like holy and beloved. Like that doesn't make any sense, except for the fact that the kindness of the Lord is always based upon the merit of another. It's exactly what God has given to us in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You're not holy. You are not righteous. But in, through faith in him, being found in Christ, he's taking care of everything for you. And so that by virtue of his sacrifice on your behalf, you have the right to be called children of God. It's the definition of grace, God giving us exactly what we don't deserve. 
And so David, marked by his father's grace, is able to take that grace and he's able to pass it on to the next generation. And I love the way that Mephibosheth responds to this news. It says in verse 8, we get this picture that he's just marked by David's kindness and grace. And it says that he falls to the ground and he says, What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? You're giving me kindness? I was expecting death. Like you're, you're bringing me into your home. I was expecting the streets. I mean, that's normal. Like nothing about what you're doing right here is normal. What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? Church, do you ever remember the first time that you ever understood, fully understood, the enormity of God's grace for you? I'm not talking about the time that you prayed the prayer. I'm not talking about the time that maybe that was at that, that exact time. I'm talking about the time that it hits you. Holiness, righteousness of God Almighty coming to you, giving you grace, undeserved favor, what you don't, don't deserve. I'll never forget it. At the end of my sophomore year at high school, I've been a believer since I was five or six early on, and it hit me that night. The preacher was preaching, and I got this picture of just the holiness of God over here. Me and my depravity and my sin and my lostness way over here. God and in his infinite love coming all the way over here, grabbing me, taking me home, bringing me to be with him. It's not a revolutionary message or anything, but it's, it's an understanding of the fullness of God's grace, holiness, coming to unholiness, and bringing them from where that place and taking them home. You know what took place that night for the very first time? Worship. Move from a cognitive understanding of, 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 of what the church believes and what I should believe and, and who Jesus might be, but it moved from a cognitive understanding of these different realities about who God is, and it, it, and it, and it manifested in worship. And I remember coming back to my room and just devouring God's word and, and singing out loud when no one else is around and just, and just giving my life to him and just absolute worship, understanding the enormity of his grace to me. What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? The chapter keeps going, and in verse 11, it says that he went on to eat at the king's table as one of his sons for the rest of his days, but as many as have received him, to them he's given the right to be called children of God. He went on to eat at the king's table as one of his sons for the rest of his days. Church, I promise you, if you're eating at the king's table as one of his sons, like you're getting the good food. Right? It's not spam and bologna and hot dogs, although some people like that stuff. It's, we're talking filet mignon and lobster just in abundance. And here it is. All of it began with a question. Lord, who can I show your kindness to today? That's it. Lord, who can I show your kindness to today? All I need is one person, God. Would you just give me one person? It's about three years ago, I wrote this prayer down on my board, and I think it came from the Lord, but it just simply said, Lord, would you allow us to be included in the 1%? That's it. Lord, would you allow us to be included in the 1%? And then right underneath that, I wrote, Lord, would you let me be included in that 1%? That we would be a multiplying missional family that is marked by God's grace. That brings joy to our city and glory unto God. And what that means is that we're always going to be sending people into our community. We're always going to be looking outside of these walls. We're always going to be investing in the schools that are around us and the apartments that are around us and the, the homes that are around us. And we're always going to be sending people out there. And it means that we're always going to be going to our neighbors and to our coworkers and to our family and to our friends. But it also means we're going to be going to the people that we have no other relationship with. We're going to be going to the homeless. We're going to be going to the incarcerated. 
We're going to be going to the refugees. We're going to be going to all these different people groups that need to understand the love and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it means we're going to keep doing these different events around here. They're going to be able to communicate the exact same thing, much like our community giveaway, which is coming up in a few weeks, which is our opportunity to, surra- to, to, to serve the surrounding community by giving of our things to families who are in need, that they may know that there's a God in heaven who loves them. And here's the reality, church, when that is who we become, a mission-minded family that is marked by God's grace, I promise you it'll absolutely be for the joy of our city and for the glory of our God. May that be true of us. I'm going to invite you to pray with me. Heavenly